It's philosophy talk. Coffee, coffee, coffee. Um, hot chocolate for dawn. You're too young for coffee. Why do we treat people differently based on their age? Wouldn't it be unfair to treat everybody the same? You're too young to be drinking whiskey. Not too young to shoot a man. Not too young to drink whiskey. How is age different from other identities? Age isn't like race or gender. Nobody's gonna be the same age their whole life. Why should age determine what activities you can do, what benefits you can access, and what rights you have? Well, as your mother, I'm putting my foot down. You're too young to have your own army. Our guest is Juliana Bidadinore, author of Justice Across Ages. You're too young for marriage. You're too old, fat man. Sorry, Dad, you're too old. Too young? I'm the same age you were when you went to war. Should all ages be equal? It's too old. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Is age discrimination always wrong? Would we really want to let 13-year-olds drive? How do we take age into account without being ageist? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you via the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today we're asking, should all ages be equal? That's a cool question, Ray. I mean, should society treat everyone exactly the same, regardless of how old they are? Well, that's clearly ridiculous. I, I wouldn't want a 15-year-old to be able to buy a bottle of whiskey, or, or a 40-year-old competing against kids in a spelling bee. Okay, but those are extreme examples, right? I mean, I, I think in general there are too many age restrictions. Like, like how come some 25-year-old who knows nothing about politics gets to vote, but a, a smart 17-year-old who's super plugged in doesn't have a say in the future of their country. Well, that might be unfair to 17-year-olds for now, but all they have to do is wait a year and then they can go vote their hearts out. So the system is totally fair. Everyone eventually gets their turn. How is that fair? I mean, just because we discriminate against all 17-year-olds, that's supposed to make it fair? Well, what are you proposing? Well, I don't know. Figure out who's qualified to vote. Give them a civics test. Oh, like that's gone well in the past. Uh, okay, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But okay, how about equal pay? Yeah, what about it? Well, fast food restaurants will give you next to nothing if you're a teenager. You can earn less than minimum wage for doing exactly the same job as somebody else, just because you're a bit younger. Well, yeah, Josh, that's because kids don't need as much money. They're basically taken care of by their parents. So what? I mean, if it's the same work, it should have the same reward. But what if some 25-year-old moves back in with their parents? Are you going to dock that person's pay as well? Look, even if we pay everyone the same, there's still going to be differences based on age. I mean, you don't want eight-year-olds working as chimney sweeps, do you? I mean, I know you're a <laughs> Brit and all, but really. Oh, guilty as charged, governor. But no, okay, fair enough about chimney sweeps. Child labor laws are definitely essential. All I'm saying is, you know, once you're old enough to work, you should get paid the same as everyone else. Oh, come on, Josh. A 15-year-old just isn't going to be as good as an 18-year-old. You know, their, their prefrontal cortex isn't as developed. They're going to be less reliable, less mature, less resourceful. So, of course, you're going to pay them less. You make it sound like all 18-year-olds are super reliable. Now, I don't know about you, Ray, but I know some pretty flaky 18-year-olds. So you, you want to pay them more than a really responsible 15-year-old? How are you going to make that work? 
the rules we have might be arbitrary, but there's just no good alternative. You need to draw the lines somewhere. And the cool thing about those lines is that after you draw them, they apply equally to everybody. You're the same age? Great, you get treated the same. But it's not enough just to treat people the same. I mean, what if we treated all 50-year-olds the same by refusing to hire them? That wouldn't be fair. Even if something applies equally to all 50-year-olds, it can still be wrong. <laughs> You're just scared I'm going to have you fired from this show for being past your prime. Oh, guilty as charged again, governor. <laughs> but seriously, there has got to be a way to prevent age discrimination while also taking age into consideration when it makes sense. I don't know how we do that, but I bet our guest does. It's Juliana Bidadanue from Stanford University. She's just published a book on the subject called Justice Across Ages. In the meantime, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to take a look at why some people are campaigning to lower the voting age. She files this report. We will not comply. We will not consent. Since the pandemic lockdown, school boards across the country have become political battlegrounds over mask mandates, vaccines, and reopening guidelines. These are our kids, not yours! Where are yours? In San Francisco, the fights have had a unique twist. The school board there had voted to rename 44 schools whose names they said were tied to historical injustices. A lot of people were unhappy this was happening during the pandemic while schools were still closed. As far as we can tell, they didn't open any, you know, biographies on any of these people. Um, and, you know, there were famous historical figures that they literally only considered for a few seconds. And it doesn't stop there. In early 2021, people were outraged after tweets made by Allison Collins, a Board of Education commissioner, were shared widely. In those tweets, Collins said Asian Americans use white supremacist thinking to get ahead. And there was a backlash. The mayor and many local leaders called for her to step down. Amy Chang was a high school senior at the time. If you do not want racist tweets to be used against you for political reasons, then do not make racist tweets. Now three members of that school board are facing a recall vote. But many of the students in the district won't get a say. They can't vote. And that's something young people in San Francisco tried to change. We are fighting back against crises at a scale no other generation has ever seen. And we need the power of the vote to make our voices count now. My generation simply does not have the privilege not to be politically engaged. In 2020, Ellie Lerner campaigned for a proposition to extend voting rights to 16 and 17 year olds in San Francisco. The measure would apply to local candidates and ballot measures. I think that kids are so incredibly involved and especially during the pandemic have realized the failures of the education system and are demanding greater action and greater voice. Ellie has been politically engaged since middle school when she began to feel the direct effects of climate change. This is the Kmart shopping center. This is Kmart burning up. In 2017, the Tubbs fire swept through cities like Santa Rosa, where her grandmother lived. Luckily, she was able to get out in time, but the area around her house completely burned down in Santa Rosa. Um, and we had several other family and um, friends have to come and stay with us. House is burning, uh, looks like on the north side of the road. Lots of them. At the time, it was the most destructive wildfire in California history. Just seeing the devastation across the state, and I also have asthma, so struggling to breathe for several days and realizing that this was only going to continue. 
she saw how the decisions politicians were making directly impacted her future, and that pushed her to demand a greater voice in the political system. But not everyone agreed with her. In fact, in 2016, San Francisco voters rejected the measure to lower the voting age. Ellie campaigned for it again in 2020, and it was rejected again. I actually talked to a few adults who did vote against it. Their main concern was that kids do not have to pay property taxes. And so, you know, we're not as invested or wouldn't really be educated enough to vote on topics concerning property taxes, particularly. But then not everyone owns a home in San Francisco. There are plenty of people that don't, and we still grant them the right to vote. On another level, Ellie says adults are afraid of a fundamental shift, that the status quo would be disrupted if kids could vote. She voted in her first national election in 2020. Young Americans are energized and highly engaged in this election. More than one million voters aged 18 to 21 have cast their ballots early. People often assume young voters are apathetic, but according to an analysis from the website 538, the core of the issue is feeling disenfranchised from politics. Young people are much more likely to report barriers to voting than older people. Like people on social media, they'll like post a picture of them and their ballot, them and their I voted sticker. So it's almost like you feel a little pressure to vote? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> According to research from Tufts University, the 2020 election featured one of the highest rates of youth voting since the voting age was lowered to 18 in 1971. We are certifying the 26th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. That amendment, as you know, provides for the right to vote of all of our young people between 18 and 21. 11 million new voters as a result of this amendment. That was during the Vietnam War, when young people were old enough to fight, but not old enough to vote. Now, decades later, the efforts to lower the voting age are local. Youth in San Francisco pushed to lower it before, and there are no signs they won't try again. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks for that report, Holly. I have to say I'm increasingly persuaded by the idea of a youth vote. I'm Josh Landy. With me is my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs. And today we're asking, should all ages be equal? We're joined now by Juliana Bidadanare. She's professor of philosophy and political science at Stanford University and the author of Justice Across Ages, Treating Young and Old as Equals. Juliana, welcome back to Philosophy Talk. Thank you so much for having me. So Juliana, last time you were on the show, we talked about a world without work. How did you end up moving into this cool new direction? Well, um, that's a good question. Actually, uh, the two topics are tightly connected, at least in my head. Um, I started working on, on, on this in 2008, just after the financial crisis. Mm. Um, and I was living between France and the UK at the time. And I was witnessing the disproportionate impact the crisis had on youth unemployment throughout Europe. And at the time, it was typical for the young to be three to four times more uh, likely to be unemployed than older age groups. And uh, youth unemployment even peaked at 60% in Greece and Spain. Uh, and yet what I was witnessing was a critical lack of support for the young in spite of these effects. So in France, for instance, we have an income support scheme that um, uh, gives you 500 euros a month if you have no other sources of income, uh, but that excluded young adults below the age of 25. And that age-based inequality seemed really unjust to me. But on the other hand, you know, there are plenty of inequalities between age groups that seem fine, like um, driving restrictions for the young. And so as a philosopher, I saw a puzzle there. I was like, why do we feel that some inequalities 
between age groups are fine um, and others not. Um, so I embarked on this project to answer those questions. So Juliana, I can imagine uh, a position that says, look, our restrictions are basically sensible. Like mm. when you can drive, when you can vote, when you can drink, those are all restricted based on age, but that makes sense. And we also have labor laws against age discrimination, which are really good. So why aren't things just good the way they are? Why do we have to change something? Well, I actually think that um, we do not scrutinize age-based inequalities as much as we should. And um, as you know, as your little introduction has, has shown, age inequalities are everywhere. And that is because, you know, age deeply structures our lives and societies and it shapes social institutions, roles, relationships, and uh, how you assign obligations and entitlements. And so, you know, each stage of life brings characteristic opportunities and vulnerabilities. So there are going to be age inequalities everywhere, and they are also going to be multidimensional and multidirectional. So age discrimination laws in the workplace and labor market are really helpful, but they only help avoid, you know, the worst cases of ageism, typically against older workers. But there are all sorts of other differential treatments and distributive imbalances that are introduced by policies in the domains of healthcare, political institutions, um, the environment. And to me, these need to be scrutinized very carefully. Uh, and to do that, we need conceptual tools. And this is what I try to do in, in the book. One thing I might think about, like all these age inequalities that kind of came up when Josh and I were talking is, look, as long as uh, it, like it's fine if I'm badly off when I'm 15, as long as I get to be well off when I'm 21, who cares? I will get to have the bad time in my life and the good time in my life the same as everybody else. Like, why should this kind of inequality be worrisome to us? That's a really good question. And I think that's kind of this common sense starting place that, you know, we uh, we all age. And so we can expect to have been treated equally over time, even if we are treated very unequally at any given time. I think that's the starting intuition. That means that philosophers and people in general haven't really questioned uh, age inequalities as much as they have questioned inequalities on other uh, suspicious grounds like, you know, race or gender. And I think there is definitely something really powerful to that intuition. You, you'll get your chance to do something or to get a benefit because you will get there at some point in your life. Um, but I think that that's just not enough. It's a helpful starting point and maybe it helps us see that some inequalities are not going to turn out to be problematic, but there are still some limits that should be set to um, those kinds of inequalities just because they are you know, synchronic inequalities that don't turn into diachronic inequalities, it doesn't mean that those are desirable in any sense of the world. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about justice across ages with Juliana Bidadanare from Stanford University. Should you have to be older to own a gun? Should we let younger people vote? Is age just a number or does maturity actually matter? Age, equality and injustice, along with your comments and questions when Philosophy Talk continues. Should everyone be expected to act their age, whatever age that happens to be? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs, and we're asking, should all ages be equal? 
with Juliana Bidadanare from Stanford University, author of Justice Across Ages. We're pre-recording this episode, and unfortunately we can't take your phone calls, but you can always email us at comments at philosophytalk.org, or you can comment on our website, where you can also become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. So, Juliana, it seems like it's sometimes okay to take age into account and sometimes not. How do we tell the difference? Yeah, that's the really important question. Okay, so <laughs> yes, you're right. Clearly, sometimes it's okay to take age into account. In fact, it is often okay, I would say, to take age into account since we want policies that are adapted and responsive to actual needs, and those needs are often going to be age-specific. So I would say differential treatment that is there to ensure that we have enough at different life stages to be well and do well are okay. And obviously it does not take the same amounts or kinds of resources to get the same threshold of functioning at different stages of life. So the age differential spending that is there to address this is not problematic in my view. It is just what um, adapted treatment and in fact equality require. Um, now, it gets a little more complex in that at times we are not trying to bring everyone to the same level. We are trying to enable opportunities that are themselves um, age specific, like going to college for a young adult or retiring in dignity and financial security for another age group or you know, playing long hours each day for young kids. So then this is going to take different types of interventions, different kinds of opportunities, uh, and the inequalities or the seeming differential treatment that we see there are absolutely not problematic. I think the key is for these differential treatments to show equal concern for all stages of life. It sounds like uh, built into that is kind of an idea of what shape a human life normally would take or ought to take. And so I'm curious about like whether that really is informing what you just said and, and where I would get my ideas about that. That's true. I think that there is a sense in which uh, we start from what we understand in our society as legitimate or reasonable aspirations of members of different age groups. But of course, we need to be very critical of that. And I think one way of being critical of that is to make sure that we, are, we have sufficiently inclusive deliberative procedures to ensure that people at different stages of their lives are, in, are involved in the conversation uh, on what it means to do well and be well and want particular aspirations at different stages of life. Um, so that gets us into like what kinds of inequalities are actually problematic. We can actually have policies that are age biased and that they don't necessarily show equal concern for different life stages. And that can happen when some age groups are excluded from deliberations. So that takes us back to the Robin Philosophical Report and this issue of, you know, getting more young people involved, maybe lowering the voting age, uh, maybe having, you know, rep representatives of the younger generations uh, on the legislature. Uh, I, you know, I think a lot about the, the Brexit vote since mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a Brit myself, at least in part. and. Uh, you know, there was a, a fair amount of resentment on the Remain side that uh, this was a, a vote heavily decided by folks from the older generation in a situation where, you know, the younger folks are going to be dealing with the consequences, presumably, for, for a longer time. So you might think the biggest stakeholders are those with more of their life ahead of them. How do we, how do we increase the say that uh, the younger generation has in politics? Oh, that's definitely a tough question and a very important one. I mean, lowering the voting age makes total, makes total sense to me. And I think that we can't quite um, 
treat teenagers in a way that um, makes it seem as if they have nothing to do in politics and that politics is not their domain and then expect suddenly that at 18, uh, they will be completely politically involved. I think we need to think about this far more inclusively um, early on. Now, lowering the voting age is, is a, a proposal that makes sense to me and, and is often discussed. But I think one that is also very important is thinking about political representation as well. And that's what I talk about in the book a bit more than um, the voting age. So, you know, only 2% of uh, global parliamentarians are under the age of 30. Uh, and that to me is quite striking. I think, you know, it's very important to make sure that parliaments look like the populations they are representing. And, you know, there are lots of arguments for this, but I think some of the most powerful ones are about, um, you know, symbolism, making sure that we attest to a political community, that people in a certain group are actually political agents. And I think if we send that message to young adults, that can uh, make a difference. And also, obviously, for substantive reasons. So if we don't have any young adults in parliaments, how are we expecting that the policies that come out of those deliberations are going to reflect accurately the interests and the concerns of that uh, age group? And more importantly for me, how do we expect that the misrepresentations, the stereotypes about youth uh, are going to be uh, challenged, right? If there aren't any young adults to actually stand up and confront those stereotypes. So this actually raises a question for me. So I, I agree that 30 is definitely much older than you need to be to be a, a good deliberative citizen. But there is some kind of question about like the deliberative capacities of teenagers or maybe children. Like it seems like you sort of you start life as a baby and you you don't yet have the ability to participate in democracy. And then at some point you gain it. Like, how do I figure out where that point is and respect differences in capacities while also respecting that? Like, I want young people to have a voice in society and to to grow to be like better and better citizens yeah i mean the, this is really the really tricky question but i think that um the approach i i take in my book at least is to say well look we have so much work to do to integrate the age group of young adults who are basically between the age of 16 years old and the age of 30. There's so much work to ensure that they are better integrated in our political institutions and that they are not marginalized from you know, the political uh, sphere and to ensure that they are included also in the other sphere I talk about, which is uh, the labor market. There's so much work to be done here to improve the situation of those younger. And I think to me, focusing on you know, 18 to 30, even when it comes to parliamentary representation, um, would actually already do a lot to increase um, the voting power of those younger and to reduce some of the issues discussed earlier around, you know, Brexit and what happens when the policies that are enacted um, do not represent the interest of those who are younger. I think that lowering the voting age is a way of doing that. But I think rethinking the way we introduce children to politics in schools so that they do feel concerned and involved very early on is probably a way to ensure that this issue doesn't happen You know, when young people do actually have the right to vote. And then there are so many things we can do to make it easier for people to vote, even if they change address often, as happens uh, with the young generations, because they are actually barriers to voting for people who don't have as stable lives as other age groups that could be alleviated pretty easily uh, without necessarily having to start thinking about what to do with toddlers, right? You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about treating people of different ages differently with Juliana Bidadanare from Stanford University. 
So we've got a comment from Stephen Oakland, who writes, The movement for age equality may be primarily composed of people who are simply afraid to take the responsibility of being accountable as adults, which seems a little odd because, Juliana, you've been talking about uh, people wanting to be more accountable as adults and, and have more, a greater mm-hmm. political voice. Uh, we've also got a question from Devin in San Francisco, who writes, Could your guest please comment on the idea of a maximum voting age? Devin writes, we have a practical problem of actual voters being disproportionately composed of older people who will not have to live as long with the consequences of their electoral decisions. So what do you think, Juliana? Should there be a maximum voting age the way that there's currently a minimum voting age? No, I don't think so. My answer is definitely no. Uh, I worry about anyone being excluded from political processes. And I think we need to have extremely good reasons to exclude people. And I think we do have those reasons for toddler and small children. I don't think we do have those good reasons uh, very often for teenagers. And um, But I don't think the answer to you know making sure that the voices of those younger and future generations are better represented is to... Uh, disenfranchise people over a certain age. I think we should just do everything we can to increase political power for those younger, but um, we shouldn't really need to consider uh, disenfranchising anyone um, in order to ensure that our policies are more um, fair intergenerationally and that they are more long-termist. I have a related question for you, Juliana. This Mm -hmm. is, uh, as you know, in France, there's a mandatory retirement age, and uh, this is something that uh, terrifies me. Uh, (laughs) I would would hate for myself, but I think I would hate for my society. But Mm -hmm. you know, but I wanted to know what what you think about it. Is that I mean, you can see the argument for the argument for it as well. Um, If there's a mandatory retirement age, then you open up opportunities for the younger generation. Yeah. and, you know, so how, in other words, how do we balance the needs of the young and the needs of, uh, you know, the older generations, so people who enjoy their work and want to keep going and um, find meaning and purpose in that? Uh, so what do you think about that? Yeah. Oh, that's a good case. So, you know, the problem with that case is that they are often like two rationales for mandatory retirement that are kind of, it's they are very hard to pick apart and I think one of them is very dangerous but it's difficult Mm. to know when it's hidden behind the other rationale so there is one which is um, simply that you know if jobs are scarce and if we are serious in being fair in distributing those scarce goods then one of the fairest way of distributing them is to ensure that everyone has access to them at one point in their lives right we could we could do that for other goods we could say well everyone should have a sabbatical year in their lives where they get paid by the government to do what it is that they want to do uh, and the fairest way to do that would clearly be to say everyone gets to have that good at one point in their life so that rationale makes sense unfortunately the best empirical evidence suggests that it doesn't work that way the economy isn't actually working in such a way that if you remove older workers you suddenly magically create more space for younger workers now there's another uh, rational that is really ageist it's really the idea that people after a certain age become lesser contributors mm-hmm. and when they are in the workplace they can't contribute as much they are slower All of those things are really stereotypes about people after a certain age, and those are damaging stereotypes. And this is a form of ageism. And in many places, it's actually against the law um, to uh, treat people that way. So I think, you know, that rationale, that ageist rationale is very problematic. But sometimes behind the first rationale, which in the abstract might be fine, um, there is actually the ageist um, stereotypes given behind it. So we have to be really, really careful. 
So something that's coming out for me here that also kind of makes me wonder about the youth jobs guarantee idea mm, mm. is like, what is the place of work like in a life? Because you can think of like some different things that like older people or younger people could be doing if they weren't working. Like younger people could be getting a, a sponsored education where they didn't have to worry about working. Um, and older people could be like getting their, their livelihood paid for. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also like this idea of like, Part, being a, a full participant in society requiring work uh -huh. like uh -huh. which of which of those ways of thinking about work should i be leaning on more heavily okay that's a good question too so i think that um really one of the things that drove me into this space was really this frustration with the idea that was becoming quite widespread around the financial crisis that uh, it was not a good response to give cash to young adults. Um, that, you know, young adults need to be taught the right values. They shouldn't be given something for nothing. And mm. if we are going to do anything to help them out, it should be encouraging them to go back to work. And the best way to do that is probably to force them to stay with their parents uh, and to not enable at least their financial independence. And I think because this view is really connected with what we think about youth in particular and what's appropriate for that age. Of course, now we are talking about the intersection between age and class and race. And so the kind of youth that were finding themselves um, unemployed, especially those who were finding themselves unemployed for long stretches of time, you know, didn't necessarily have access to a lot of other opportunities, including educational opportunities. And so we were just telling them, you have to accept work, you have to go to work, any work really. Um, I don't think that that's the right way to think of, of our life. I think that there are ways to um, build economic security for all stages of life so that at any point you can actually decide whether the job opportunities that are open to you uh, are the right ones for you. Um, and I think we understand that for um, later stages in life, even though I think we in general have those views about every age group, but I think it's just more intensified when it comes to young adults. We really, really worry about them not working. Uh, and I think we should, you know, I think job guarantees for young people, um, retraining, educational opportunities are essential, but I think we should also trust young adults with cash when clearly one of the problems they are facing is in fact the cash poverty uh, and the, the lack of uh, economic security. Yeah, and I, that brings up a kind of intergenerational justice where, you know, you you were mentioning earlier mm. about the, um, you know, there's a certain picture we have in our minds that, well, everyone gets their turn, right? Mm -hmm. So it's okay that you can't vote at 17 because like everybody else, you get to vote at 18. Mm -hmm. But what if in some cases it's like a Ponzi scheme, right? Mm -hmm. Where mm -hmm. everyone else got their turn to, to, to have a, a economically better life than the previous generation, perhaps or probably to enjoy an unspoiled earth, to live in a relatively functional democracy. But at a certain point, you know, the pyramid scheme sort of gives out and the current young generation is facing a very different mm -hmm. environment. How do we what what does a philosopher have to say about the justice of that kind of situation? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question, because this is actually a way for me to get at like when are inequalities by age actually wrong, which I, you know, I haven't really gotten into that much yet. So I think um, one type of inequalities between age groups that we should really worry about is the one that will, in fact, generate generational inequalities. So that's exactly what you just said. Um, so in the case of the young adults after the financial recession, as you say, you know, a lot of people reacted by saying, 
it's okay. Young adults are always more likely to be unemployed than older age groups. You know, they catch up later on. It's just the transition from education to work can be a bit tricky, uh, but it will be fine eventually. The truth is now we know that's not true, right? There are things called scaring effects um, that mean that young people who socialized in a context of extreme job scarcity are far more likely to remain um, in a relative disadvantaged position later in life. They are more likely to have stagnant wages and they are more likely to be unemployed again in the future. So that's what pushed some people, for example, in the UK or in France, to start oh, throughout Europe, really, to start describing a jilted or a disadvantaged generation. That's one way in which inequalities by age are really wrong is when, in fact, they turn into long-term enduring generational inequalities. Um, and I think there are like two more ways in which age inequalities can be wrong. So bear with me. <laughs> one is uh, <laughs> when inequalities in age groups uh, don't plausibly reflect equal concerns for different life stages. Uh, I touched on that a little bit earlier. And I think it's just that sometimes our decisions can be uh, age biased in that they deny particular age groups opportunities that are reasonable for them to want without good enough reason. You know, it, it makes sense to think that when you're old enough to work and so to be unemployed, you should also have access to the system of social protection that's put in place for people that, that are in need. Um, and then the very last thing I would say about inequalities that are wrong is that when they undermine our social standing, they are wrong. It doesn't matter if we age out of it, you know, we shouldn't want to live in societies where people are infantilized, let's say, uh, exploited, uh, demonized, there's, you know, benefits scroungers, uh, and age can affect our social standing very often, you know, older adults are sometimes infantilized in care homes, uh, young adults are not taken seriously as political agents or negatively portrayed as lazy. So those kinds of inegalitarian modes of relating, I think we should avoid in general. It doesn't matter uh, that we are actually going to go through all stages. We should have a society that's free of those kinds of inegalitarian modes of relating. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about age and discrimination with Juliana Bidadanare from Stanford, author of Justice Across Ages. Should any of our age limits be raised or lowered? Could we let younger people have a say in how their schools are run? Should there be a mandatory retirement age? Aiming for intergenerational justice, plus commentary from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher, when Philosophy Talk continues. If the older generation treats the younger generation like pawns, what kind of justice is that? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is Juliana Bidadanare from Stanford University, and we're asking, should all ages be equal? So Juliana, with the powers vested in us by public radio, we're going to make you czar of age equality today. <laughs> what's, the, what's the first thing you're going to do to create a society that's fair for all generations? Well, if I'm a czar, then I have a lot of power. And so I'm That's going right. to cheat it and I'm going to do two things instead okay. of one. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the first one would be a basic income for all ages, actually. So I'm very much in favor of the policy in general. But I think that my commitment to age equality has kind of reinforced my commitment to the idea. And I want individuals to be able to experience some robust economic security and to be in a position to plan from that position of security at all stages of life. 
And I think for me, the way to design a generous system of social protection is age inclusive in that way. Um, and I think the second policy is introducing youth quotas uh, in parliaments. And I think we talked about this already, but as I said, only 2% of the world's parliamentarians are 30 or younger. Uh, we need to do better than that if we want our parliaments to really represent the interest of all um, age groups without age bias. And if we want our policies to be long-termist the <laughs> right way, I think I think this is probably one of the things we should do among many others. So that's interesting because your your first uh, proposal was actually not age differential at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so how much of age or generational injustice like actually requires age specific solutions rather than just uplifting everybody regardless of age? Uh, so I don't think I can answer it exactly in those terms because uh, there are so many spheres where they are age inequalities of one form or another. So it's going to be tricky to say like how often should it be the same and how often should we be different? You know, I think it's really a case by case uh, situation. But I would say that, you know, for basic income, it comes to me as obvious that we need to ensure that for all ages of life, there's at least a minimum that's insured and secured. You know, it's almost like a threshold that you need to ensure is met at any point in life, because we know that even though our plans and aspirations change as we age, there are some basic things that we need, you know, to be secure, to be healthy, um, to be fed. So I think just ensuring that people don't have to worry about that and can make, make plans based on that I think um, is what we want for all ages. Now, you know, it's interesting because actually in this idea of basic income for all ages is built like a baby bond for children. And so it's kind of age specific because you might ask, so do we give a basic income to kids? And so I think we do give a kind of a basic income to kids in the form of child benefits to parents. But I think part of that basic income for the kids could be put into an account, like a baby bond. Um, that um, is a kind of a savings account. And then when you reach 18, you can actually retrieve the cash. And so you have a little basic capital to start from uh, as you start your adult life. So, you know, this is kind of responsive to age specific needs and aspirations, but without being entirely age differentiated because they are things that we need at, at every stage of life. These seem like good proposals, you know, and I, I also think of some other things, for example, if people talk about uh, in the United States, reducing the cost of college, maybe even eliminating the cost mm -hmm. of college. Mm -hmm. um, but you often meet with a kind of psychological block, which may be more than psychological. Maybe it, it comes to a question of justice, because I think some people think, uh, we, I had to pay for college. Uh, wouldn't justice require that everyone pay for college? Now, of course, I, I think the exact opposite. I think it would be fantastic if we were able to make college affordable, maybe even free. Um, but how do we how do we convince other people that this would actually be, uh, you know, the, the, the right thing, a positive thing, something everyone could get behind? Yeah, I, I agree. I think this reaction is very widespread, actually. I had to struggle for this. Like, why should the person that comes next not have to struggle for the same thing? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's just so problematic, though, because obviously we believe in some form of social progress and we should want <laughs> you know, the next generation to be better off and to not have to suffer from the thing we suffer from. And it turns out in this particular case, younger generation are going to have to face so many terrible things that we already know they are going to have to face. And so, you know, thinking that there are ways to, you know, including like through a basic income that we could make it easier for them to um, confront the really disastrous 
consequences of um, climate change, which we don't know yet exactly what they are going to be for our economies, but also the future of work, which is really complicated and messy and a lot of jobs are going to be automated. You know, like there are some challenges that future generations are going to have to face and ensuring that they have a guaranteed um, a guaranteed floor you know, to be able to adapt to those challenges that we have never faced before, to me, seems just like a better way of equipping the next generation um, uh, for those challenges than, than, than just doing what we've done so far and hoping that things go well. I wonder if I can broaden out to a, a general confusion I have about this whole topic. Mm. I have had for a long time. Why why are age limits so various? Like you can you can drive at 16, you can serve in the military at 17, you can vote at 18, you get to drink at 21. Um, mm. Is there any logic? I mean, of course, in many states you can own a gun as long as it's a long gun at a very young age. Is <laughs> it is is it all just arbitrary or is there, have you know, in your research, have you found any kind of logic behind these very different uh, standards that we set for different things. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the key is consistency. I mean, a lot of the examples you've just given, I, are they arbitrary? Yes, <laughs> I do think so. And, and and yeah, don't get me started on those you know gun restrictions. It's just I, I'm French, so I'm completely. I, I think everything about it it's so um, difficult for me to grapple with. But you know, I think if you just look at how different countries do things, you'll realize how much arbitrariness there is into it. You know, because uh, we don't allow people to drink exactly at the same age. We don't allow them to drive at the same age but of course we try to uh use age as proxies for a variety of things including um competence you know if if uh, you're in the the context of politics you know you might think of political competency and what does that mean you know political expertise uh or also you know just the capacity to deliberate in particular ways the the capacity to understand the capacity to be responsible so i think you know we, we try to we use we use age as a proxy for that and i think it's never quite perfect but i think obviously there is something important that that needs to be preserved here. Often what we try to do is just protect the interests of those younger as, as well as we can. And we just need to be willing to reconsider when we are being inconsistent across spheres, like enabling people to go to war, but not letting them, you know, have a drink. Uh, you know, we need to be consistent in the way we do it, we do it across spheres. And more importantly, I think we need to be inclusive in the way we make those decisions. And that's tricky if we've made the decisions right from the beginning that young adults and teenagers are not really competent enough to join the conversation. So this makes me kind of have a big question about paternalism because mm. the the restriction, like age restrictions on things like drinking are kind of paternalistic. And it seems like one major goal of how we should treat each other in, in civil society is to respect each other's autonomy. But I think both at the beginning of life and at the end of life, uh, you have people sort of losing capacities or not yet gaining capacities to make decisions mm -hmm. for themselves. Mm -hmm. How do I sort of think about treating people with dignity when they're in those those situations? Mm -hmm. uh, that's key because obviously we want to protect the well-being of people at all stages of life. And sometimes that means uh, accepting that we are going to overstep and that we are going to make decisions for others and there is something that it's almost like a predicament. It's, it's something necessary we have to do, but it's normal to feel dissatisfied about it. You know, I think that we need to be open to the idea of um, 
doing things differently. I think, you know, it's not exactly answering your question about paternalism, but I've worked a bit on infantilization. And I think there is a way we relate to people um, who are older and the way we relate also to people who are younger, young adults. There's just not compatible with at least what I see as the goal of a society where we respect each other. I think as a, as a young adult myself, I've experienced countless instances of infantilization, you know, even in institutions like healthcare or, you know, when you go see a doctor or when you go and try to uh, get a driving license, like, you know, all those kinds of contexts where you can really be treated with far more degrading ways that, that, that you should be. And just because you're younger, just because you're older, we shouldn't be victim of that. Um, now, of course, one thing we haven't talked about, but you know, eventually what I care about is inequalities in general. And so people who are gonna be infantilized or who are gonna be marginalized in various ways because of their age are also gonna be so by virtue of other features of their identity. So it's essential to be critical about infantilization um, you know, of older people and infantilization of young adults, also because those mechanisms are the same ones that will be used to undermine or degrade women and people in racial minorities. And sometimes it will be actually the same people that will be at the receiving end of those uh, infantilizing treatments. Well, Juliana, this has been a fascinating and indeed rejuvenating conversation. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining us today. Thank you so much for your questions. So it's great to be here. Our guest has been Juliana Bidadanare, Professor of Philosophy and Political Science at Stanford University and author of Justice Across Ages, Treating Young and Old as Equals. So, Ray, what are you thinking now? I really like how uh, Juliana's project is motivated for respect for people at all ages. Uh, I find this really challenging, especially in kind of like intergenerational activist conversations where you have kind of often generational disagreements and... Uh, the older people are kind of tempted to say the younger people just don't understand how the world works and the younger people are kind of tempted to say the older people don't understand how the world should work out of touch <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'd, I'd love for those conversations to be sort of respectful and and caring and i sometimes find that a challenge i love the way juliana talks about in her writing of making spaces where people relate as equals I think that's a wonderful thing to strive for. We're going to put links to everything we've mentioned today on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can also become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Send it to us at comments at philosophytalk.org, and we may feature it on the blog. Now, okay, Boomer. It's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, coming of age used to be a thing. It was the stuff of myth. It was the stuff of many a primitive ritual involving fire and scarification. It was the start of many a fairy tale, a young man going off to find his fortune, leaving the old parents and even wicked stepmom as such there be in the dust. He may have been a teen, but he was not a teenager. The teenager was invented in the 1940s. It was an American invention coming about the same time school stopped teaching Latin and Frank Sinatra started crooning. And then came drive-in movies, jukeboxes, double features, sock hops, and television, of course, until the next generation of teens, mine, kicked Sinatra off his perch and replaced him with four mop tops from Britain. Their name? The Beatles. Culture is said to privilege one age over another, leading to ageism, but the cruel truth is that it's all just hokum. I'm a senior myself, and you know, I've never had it so good. Discounts at the discount store, shouts of step it up, old-timer, in the Safeway parking lot, when informed I don't have this or that app on my smartphone, cries of, okay, boomer, fill the air. It's weird and wonderful. When we were young, we were on top of everything, from sex to movies to music, and now we can't even go to the internet, allegedly, without browning out Pittsburgh or electing Trump. We're starting to kick the bucket, yet boomers still command most of the media attention. We are the forever teens. 
But don't feel bad, Gen X or Millennial or Y or today's teen or preteen or soccer mom or Karen or dad, bod dad or precocious kindergartner. Your time will come. Clichés and long-form articles of what you really want will be issued free of charge unless you're a baby. Otherwise mentally unable to process a sales pitch, you are first and foremost a member of your demographic. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, according to peer pressure, algorithms, history, propaganda, sales pitches, and other forces known only to the sociologists of tomorrow, okay, influencers, YouTube and Instagram, okay, we all must buy what our age group demands or the economy will collapse. So we have all sorts of ideal citizens out there, fit-looking gray-haired men ruffling the head of a dog, or a slim-smiling silver-haired woman on a treadmill, for instance, are the target consumers portrayed in the endless TV ads for unpronounceable new drugs that didn't even exist 20 years ago. How old are they? 50, 70? Who knows? There are gaggles of laughing young people doing various activities, from ordering drinks to skipping stones in a creek to getting out of a car on a mountain and smiling wistfully. What is being sold? I don't know. Beer, insurance, shampoo. And how old are those kids? Could be 19, could be 30. So it seems to be that ageism is losing some of its force as we all move more and more online where we're all pretty much all the same, either clueless Trumpies or feckless libtards, and age itself only matters if you want to buy a cocktail. And even there, it seems a little weird these days that traditionally we aren't supposed to be able to smoke or drink or have a pet until we're at least 18, yet we're pretty cavalier, at least according to media hysteria, in allowing hormones and puberty blockers to be administered to our anxious children. Everybody's more worried about transgender activists taking over sports than they are about whether premenopausal women have the same rights as 20-something unwed mothers. What does that tell you? What does it tell me? It tells me... Okay, Boomer, take out your teeth and take your statement. It's almost time for the James Bond Marathon on TBS. Is that still a thing? Still not sure exactly what LinkedIn does. Posted my resume with them 30 years ago. Am I still a member? What's my password? I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW Local Public Radio San Francisco and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2021. Our executive producer is Tina Pamentuan. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler and Angela Johnston. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners at our online community of thinkers. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. I'm old and I'm not happy. Everything today is improved and I don't like it. I hate it.